Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the history of money, something that we all use more or less every single day. Well, well, we use money every single day. Well, I don't know if you use the history of money every single day. I should have been more specific there. Uh, anyway, money does have a very long, very interesting history, and uh, you might already know a thing or two about it. Uh, but I'll wager, I'll wager that you're probably labouring under some uh, some pretty common misconceptions about the history of money, the way that money has developed. Uh, because it's developed a lot over the years, uh, you know, from the days of ancient economies, commodity money, credit coinage, paper banknotes, fiat money, and today, of course, digital transactions in the 21st century. Money has undergone some pretty huge changes over the centuries. Um, and as we work our way through the story of money, you'll realise one thing very well. Okay, maybe you won't realise it. I mean, I'm, you'll know it ahead of time because I'm actually telling you what it is right now. <laughs> the primary drive behind the development of money ahead of, you know, security, economic stability and all the rest of it, the primary drive behind the development of money over the years has been one thing and one thing only, convenience. More or less every significant development in the history of money has come about as a result of trying to make life easier and less complicated when it comes to, you know, just basic financial transactions. And weirdly enough, this has actually ultimately made a lot of other things much more complicated, even after reading how, you know, bloody Bitcoin works for most of the week. I still I still don't really get it. Um, and even stuff like, you know, promissory notes and distributed ledgers and things like that make me go a little bit cross-eyed, but we'll do our best and, you know, do our best to get across it all. But just remember that once again, that this is half-assed history and not half-assed economics. Um, one final thing before we begin. I'm going to use the terms money and currency pretty interchangeably here. And for the most part, they are largely interchangeable. Although there are slight differences between the two. Money on a technical level refers to the idea of money, um, the, the, like the concept of a neutral uh, financial intermediary that, uh, that facilitates transactions, whereas, whereas currency is the physical manifestation of that, uh, that concept. So in other words, you can see and you can touch, and I suppose you can like smell and taste if you really, that's what you're into, you know, there's no judgment here. You can do all of that stuff to currency, uh, whereas money, it instead just represents, uh, you know, it's the intangible numbers that, that, that currency represents. It's a small distinction, but it's one worth pointing out to, as you know, I don't want my inbox to get overrun with emails with the subject line, well, actually. So uh, anyway, let's get to it here. Let's kick off our brief overview of the history of money. Strap yourselves in because we are off down the track. Here we go. So we're going all the way back, all the way back to, uh, well, I mean, honestly, who bloody knows when? Uh, because the inv invention of money, get this right, the invention of money actually predates the invention of writing. So it's impossible to say exactly when money came about. It's also difficult to say, you know, due to the nature of money and how you actually define it, because the very first money was what's known as commodity money, things using things that have a have an intrinsic value as a way to pay for other things. So I'm talking about stuff like, you know, livestock, cows or goats or or maybe farming equipment, uh, animal skins also, or maybe, you know, a certain amount of grain. Uh, things that actually have a use, right? Things that have intrinsic value to them, commodity money. But you're saying, whoa, whoa, hang on one second here, mate. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about bartering? Everyone knows that was the precursor to money, right? That's how our ancient economies function with bartering, right? Well, I said that you were probably laboring under some misconceptions about money. And here's the first one. Bartering as an economic system never 
actually existed on any widespread scale. Sure, people did it, they still do it these days, obviously, but it's such a hugely inefficient way to clear payments that it was never the basis of any civilization's actual economy. And the reason that we think it was was because of, you know, some unfortunately very outdated uh, economic theory uh, theorization that went on uh, because of people like uh, Smith and, and Aristotle. They sort of assumed that this was how people did it way back when. And, and the fact of the matter is they just didn't because bartering is just a really, really bad way to conduct transactions. Have a think about it like this, right? Think of all the things that have to go right for a, a bartering transaction to actually take place. You have to have, first of all, what's known as a coincidence of wants, right? So imagine I'm a dairy farmer and you're a chicken farmer. You have to want milk at the same time that I want eggs or we can't trade. Um, we also have to want an amount of each other's stuff that is broadly equal. Otherwise, the trade isn't equitable. And this is you know, a huge problem when you, for example, want a whole cow when I just want you know, half a dozen bum nuts. The uh, indivisibility of, of, of many uh, goods like livestock, for example, it makes bartering impossible for small-scale trades. And additionally, if any of the goods are perishable, there's a very strict time limit on the window in which the trade can take place. So for all these reasons and many more, bartering is a horrifically inefficient economic system. And, and once again, it was never the primary basis of any civilization's economy. Mainly would take place with uh, people that you weren't sure of or, or transient itinerant traders or, or potentially enemies when you needed to actually you know, trade things without, without a, a common form of, of currency or anything. But, but bartering never actually was the basis of any civilization's economy. As I say, look, people have been bartering for 100,000 years. It's important to note that ancient marketplaces, just they weren't filled with people, you know, trading a cow for a thousand eggs and eating bloody omelets for the rest of the year. That's, it's, it's no good. So, rather, many ancient economies that lacked what we'd think of today as money, right, they instead used uh, what I referred to before as commodity money. Now, this involved the trading of, of durable and often somewhat divisible goods that were themselves worth something innately, intrinsically. As I said before, tools, hardware, um, animal skins, amounts of grain, even stuff like salt. And commodity money is obviously far superior to bartering as an economic system because let's say that you want some milk, right, but I'm not in the mood for scrambled eggs. So instead, I give you some milk and you give me like an animal pelt or a bag of salt or something and that's your payment to me. And even if I don't need or want to use the thing that you're paying me with, I can then use it to pay someone else later in the future without it losing its value. Now, commodity money is not a very difficult concept to understand. It makes sense and isn't honestly isn't hugely far removed from bartering. But, you know, the idea that a, that a pelt of an animal or a bag of salt is actually some kind of currency makes a lot more sense than, you know, trading away a, a bucket of milk, which is going to go off in a couple of days there. And, and the important thing to note about commodity money is that it involves the intrinsic value of the item itself. The bag of grain or the sheepskin or whatever it is, you know, it has a use, it has a value. It, it either provides food or shelter or warmth or whatever. Um, and this makes it very different from other currencies that we'll talk about in a bit. So we'll, you hold your horses, we'll get to that. Um, other advantages of, uh, of commodity money uh, include, you know, divisibility in the case of stuff like salt and grain or uh, durability. Of course, grain can spoil but and animal skins can rot, but they're a lot less, less perishable than milk and eggs and stuff like salt or a, you know an axe or a hammer or a, or, or a plow or something certainly going to last a lot longer than anything else so what's the problem with commodity money well as i alluded to it comes down to convenience convenience is a huge thing that drives the uh, the development of money and commodity money is just a great big pain in the ass isn't it i mean think about this you know lugging around great big bags of, of, of grain or farming tools or bundles of fur or even herd of livestock right you can't just whack them in your handbag and you know off down the market no it doesn't work like that and additionally 
commodity money doesn't scale very well. For large-scale purchases, the logistics just become impossible. And finally, while small-scale economies will largely agree on the intrinsic worth of various commodity monies, right? as humans began to travel for trade, these goods, they start to have very variable prices. For example, maybe furs aren't as valuable to traders who are coming from hot places. Uh, or, you know, so the currency, it lacks standardisation. And, and on, on a small scale, it may work, commodity money, but broadly speaking, as, you know, the, the further you travel, the less uh, viable it is to drive a herd of cows across, you know, a, across a, a huge trade route just to do a bit, of, uh, a bit of trading there. So due to the inconveniences involved with commodity money, some ancient economies instead were based on a concept that will be very familiar, perhaps all too familiar to people listening to this today in the 21st century, they developed credit economies. Now, credit economies are as old as human civilization, and you can see why. You have something that I need. I can't pay for it right now, but you know that I'm a decent bloke. You know that I'm good for it. So if you just let me have it, I'll sort you out later. Now, credit economies, obviously, they're, they're, they work well in, again, small-scale economies with tight-knit communities where people's reputations are well-known and social punishment is meted out for those who aren't, quote-unquote, good for it. Um, and in fact, plenty of historians actually reckon that credit economies like these were the real precursors to actual money rather than, you know, anything else, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Because look at it this way, right? We've already established that money is intangible, right? It, it, it doesn't actually need to exist for you to understand what it is, right? That's currency. So if money is intangible, if that's the case, as soon as you offer me credit on something, we've actually invented money. We may not have a numerical amount or, you know, something like that, very specific, but we both share a consistent concept of value that is owed between the two of us. Now, there's this author, David Graeber, and he put it like this. He said, as soon as the unquantifiable I owe you one becomes the much more explicit I owe you one specific unit of something, that's when money was invented. Now, sure, it needs a little refinement, but broadly speaking, you can argue that that's all that money is, credit. Um, as the uh, as the economist uh, Alfred Mitchell Innes put it, right? So money is mon- credit is just money, and mon- money is just credit. Credit systems can become obviously a lot more complicated than this. We can remember, for example, that I owe you a car for the ten chickens you gave me. Pretty bloody good deal for me, might, might I add? Um, so we can either remember that that I owe you a calf at some point, or we can tell other people about the agreement that we made and come calfing season, I've got to give you it, and if if we don't remember, other people will, and then I'll be you know shunned and shamed if I don't give you one. Um, or conversely, if it's been invented, right, if it's been invented yet, we can write down the fact that I owe you something. And now, surely, you begin to see how credit starts to look a lot like it is just money, right? Let's say you don't want the calf anymore. By the time I've got the calf, you don't want it, right? You can trade the note that says that I owe you a calf to someone else who does want the calf, and that, more or less, is paper money. They can give you, I don't know, bricks or whatever, whatever you're looking for, a Lego set, and uh, they'll get the calf, you'll get your Lego set, and that note that you gave them, that piece of paper, ultimately was used in a, in a financial transaction and therefore became money. So in that, in that sort of view, credit is just money. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves with paper money. Paper money's a long way off yet. Um, before we get to it, let's instead talk about, of course, what you're all imagining. When, when you think of money in your head, the first thing you think of, of course, Coins. Coins and their precursors. Now, due to the many flaws and the inconveniences of using commodity money, due to the, you know, the potential downsides, flaws and, uh, and loopholes involved in a credit economy, many civilizations realize that using something that is uh, much more easily accounted for and uh, much more convenient to lug around was the way to go. Due to the flaws and inconvenience of commodity money, using something smaller, something more portable, 
much better way of doing things, right? So we're not quite ready to divorce currency from intrinsic value, however. So if we're going to make these small, portable, durable things, right, they actually need to be worth something in their own right. In some civilizations in India and China and Africa, things like beads or cowrie shells were used as currency. And that, you know, they were pretty, they were nice to look at, and therefore they were desirable to own. They had an intrinsic value. And this might sound ridiculous. Imagine thinking, you know, bloody beads and shells are worth so much, but just remember that gold doesn't really do anything but it's still worth squillions today and was the backbone of international economies for centuries as well. So it might sound silly to be trading bloody pretty shells, but we did it for years and years and years with just a a shiny metal. One of the first large-scale economies to make use of a small unit scalable currency was the Babylonian Empire, which as early as 5,000 years ago used the shekel as a unit of currency. Now, the shekel, it it first began as a fixed weight of barley. And it was part of the development of the earlier system of what we would today think as, as economics, right? The, the Babylonians, they ended up with laws on business regulation, debt, property, etc., many of which were set down in the Code of Hammurabi, an ancient set of laws uh, from 1760 BCE, so very, very long time ago indeed. And uh, as part of the economic development of the ancient world, we soon uh, begin to use, as you've probably guessed, precious metals, as a form of money. Now, we're not quite at coins just yet, but in ancient civilizations such as Egypt, such as Babylon, gold and silver bars were used instead of things like beads or cowrie shells. Why? Because metal solves all the problems of previous commodity monies that we talked about before and is a huge upgrade on stuff like beads and cowrie shells. Why is that? Because it's easily portable, shell sell beads and shells, sure, but it's also easily divisible especially now with the development of metalworking technology. You can't cut a cowrie shell in half, you just smash it to bits, but you can divide metal, right? And furthermore, much, much more durable than anything else that has been used before. It doesn't rot, doesn't go off, it's not going to break, fall apart or anything else like that. Metal, perfect, right? Once again, so once again here you can see that something born of necessity, money, to track and manage ancient credit systems, was now developed further by the desire, by the desire here for convenience. And this is what brings us to coinage. Rather than lug around great big bars of gold, why not take advantage of the divisibility of metal to instead create small, portable and highly durable units of currency? And these are, of course, coins. And this idea developed, it actually developed independently in a couple of separate ancient civilizations. It emerged in China, in India, in the Eastern Mediterranean, all around the 7th century BCE. Now, um, some interestingly, some Chinese coins of the Zhao dynasty, right, they were quite remarkable. Rather than the uh, the small flat round discs that you'd imagine today, some ancient Chinese coins were actually shaped like knives and spades. Now, this may have been because they were first made to represent the value of the item they mo- they were modelled after. You know, a, a spade-shaped coin was worth as much as a spade, although I'm not 100% sure if that was the case. There were some sources that indicated that, but I wasn't able to confirm it conclusively. But what we do know, however, is that shaping coins like this is a horrible idea. It's such a bad idea. And it ties in uh, to one of the reasons that most coins are round. Imagine this, right? You've got you've got your purse, you've got your wallet, you even got your just your pocket, right? And it's full it's filled with loose change, filled with loose change, shaped like bloody knives and shovels. 
Imagine digging through your pocket trying to find the coin only to bloody stab yourself in the finger under the bloody fingernail with a knife sh- uh, with a knife shaped coin. No, thank you. Make them round. Don't need to bloody injure myself while I'm bloody buying me milk and eggs. Absolutely not. So, it's over the over to the Mediterranean now, or more specifically Asia Minor, Anatolia, modern day Turkey. This is where we're heading to talk about coins as they were made there in the late 7th century BCE in the kingdom of Lydia, as I said in modern day Turkey. Coins were produced on an industrial scale with a standardised value thanks to consistent weight. Lydian coins, they came in various denominations. They were stamped with things like rulers, animals, other symbols to show their worth. And they were also standardised as being round or, you know, as round as they could make them back then. Sometimes they are a little bit skew-if, but they are as close to round as the technology allowed back in these days. And of course, modern coins are today, largely speaking, descendants of these ancient Lydian coins, small, flat, round, as we talked about. Most coins from uh, India and China ended up being round as well. Most of them had holes punched in them as well, interestingly, unlike their Mediterranean counterparts. And these hold coins would be strung together on a string as a weird sort of precursor to the wallet or the purse. Um, which may have led to a major, a next major monetary development. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Anyway, uh, Lydian coinage, right, soon it had spread throughout other parts of the ancient world, specifically to modern-day Greece, where it caught on further in places such as the Athenian Empire. Now, prior to the spread to Greece, they, uh, the coins, they were largely made from electrum, which is an alloy of gold and silver. But uh, the Athenians, they had access to a lot of a lot of silver, right? Not not electrum, just just silver. They had a lot of silver mines, very very lucrative silver silver industry in ancient uh, Athens there. So, as a result, silver coinage became the new norm as the Athenian Empire, you know, gained political sway and and also a, a fair bit of economic power as well. And uh, honestly, you know. It was actually the coin, these silver coins that made an enormous contribution to the growing dominance of the Athenian Empire as, as they became increasingly popular throughout the region, not just within Athens, um, and also gave uh, Athens a way to pay its soldiers while far away uh, on campaign. And because you'll notice all of these coins, you know, whether, the, whether we're talking about electrum or silver, these coins they still had intrinsic value. We're a long way from representative currency. We're a long way from fiat money because humans just really like shiny things, apparently. So these silver coins were actually worth something in and of themselves, even though you couldn't eat them or clothe, clothe yourself with them. They still had intrinsic value. Um, interestingly as well, before we moved on, move on from ancient Greece, um, one of Athens' primary rivals, right, Sparta, they also minted their own coins, but they minted them from iron rather than silver. And this was to discourage Spartans from spending their wealth further abroad and made it impossible for them to trade with foreigners because, you know, they leave Sparta with these iron coins and other traders are like, what are you talking about? I don't want iron, mate. Where's, where, where's the silver? Give me that good Athenian silver. I don't want this bloody, uh, you know, Spartan iron. No, thank you. So you can see already, you know, some forms of uh, uh, of currency are pretty taking on some pretty bold ideas, bold economic ideas that are a long way ahead of their time. There, although you know, I don't know how I don't know how well it did for Sparta in the end to have um, have a monetary system based on iron. Anyway, coins by now they've established themselves the primary currency for human civilization. They remain the only real type of currency in places like Europe until the 16th century, long, long time. So they really weren't too bad of an idea. They lasted for a long time as the main way that people were buying and selling things. And today, of course, we have hordes of coins left over from centuries and centuries of history, and they're a very valuable source of information, uh, you know, of, of, of historical information, usually you know, usually having uh, depictions of rulers on them and some inf- information about the civilizations they ruled. And interestingly, too, 
the use of coins specifically in ancient Rome gave us some of the words that we today associate with coins and, and well, and actually <laughs> money itself, right? In Rome, it was a temple dedicated to the goddess Moneta that held the Roman mint for 400 years. And it's from the name Moneta that we get the words, both, both the words money and mint. So you can see a very real influence that uh, that coins had, not just on uh, on the development of civilization, also the development of language there. But of course, you know, coins aren't the, uh, they aren't the duck's nuts. They do have their disadvantages. While they scale a lot better than other commodity currencies, it is still a huge pain in the ass to carry around heaps of them. And additionally, right, on top of this, their value it doesn't remain steady. Throughout history, as metal prices fluctuate, the relationship between gold, silver, and copper coins also changed. These were the three primary metals out of which uh, out, out of which coins were made. And uh, as the metal prices went up and down, uh, so too did the value of the coins they were made of. For example, let's say you've got ten silver coins, and they usually that you can usually buy what one gold coin for ten silver coins. And let's say that then the price of gold goes up. All of a sudden, you're not going to be able to buy, you use those 10 silver coins to get that one gold coin anymore. And the relationship between the coins becomes, uh, you know, very messy and, uh, and, and a little all over the place. Broadly speaking, not the biggest problem in the world. But, you know, you'll see in some instances in history when there was a, you know, a huge influx of a, of a, certain, of a certain metal, then it would really mess up coin-based economies there. And that's not the only thing as well, right? Because the other big problem with coins is what people with um, rather more flexible moral compasses would do to them. They would clip them, right? Now, so this is a process that involves taking very tiny edges. Well, actually, some people just <laughs> went the whole hog and took huge bits off them, but uh, most people would clip very small amounts, tiny tiny amounts of, of the metal off the edges of the coin, so small that most of the time they wouldn't even be noticed. And then you would melt the clippings down, and now you've got a lump of silver or gold, and your original coins can still be spent at face value. So let's say you've got a coin that's worth, I don't know, whatever it is, right? You can go and buy the, the item that it is, a pair of shoes. Um, you clip a little bit off the side. You clip just a tiny bit of gold off the side of the coin. You go and buy your pair of shoes, bloody expensive pair of shoes. You're spending a gold coin on them. Um, you've got your shoes, you've spent the coin, and you've still got that tiny little bit of gold left over. You do that over and over again. All of a sudden, you know, you've got another another new gold coins worth. You've got all you got all the shoes in the world. You're absolutely loving life, right? So this has resulted in uh, coins becoming reeded. And, and even today, they still have reeded edges. Uh, a lot of coins around the world, if you pick them up and check around the side, they've got uh, these little grooves around the edges there like that. And the, the reason that this started to, to become common practice in the minting of coins is because you could tell if it had been clipped. If, if, if any of the reeds had been uh, messed with, if any of the grooves were a little smooth and they should have been, obviously... Uh, they had been clipped, but still, this didn't solve the problem of, of counterfeiting and, and, and fraudulent activity with coins. There were other things you could do. You could sweat them, uh, which didn't mean putting them in a sauna. It meant you put them in a big bag and you shook them up very vigorously, and that would uh, rub off you know, very small amounts, very trace amounts of the metal. You'd go and then spend the coins. You have a small bit of gold dust left over. You know, We're talking fractional edges here, but of course, it's just free money, so people are going to do it. So we can do better than coins. We can do better than coins. I'm sure you've already guessed what's up next, but uh, you might be interested in how the next development in money and monetary technology came about. I mentioned before that Chinese coins, they usually had holes in the middle of them and how you could string them together to carry them around. Now, of course, this is practical only to a point. You know, if you're lugging around bloody thousands of coins, you're going to bloody buggy your neck, hanging them all from a necklace. And so what many wealthy Chinese traders would do 
is they would leave their coins with a trusted associate as they headed off on trading journeys. And of course, the associate would write down how many coins had been left with them. And so when the trader came back, they'd get back the right amount and ta-da, we've just invented the promissory note. Not quite currency, but it is a bit of paper that is all of a sudden worth a lot more than the ink used to write on it. Now, Chinese traders, they would trade with these promissory notes once they figured out that they were as good as a string of coins. They quickly realized how much easier it was just to swap over bits of paper rather than hundreds and hundreds of copper coins. Now, this may seem very obvious to us today. Obviously, we still use, you know, we still use paper currency today in 2020. But this idea back back in the day it was such a good one. It was such a revolutionary one that after a while, the Chinese government itself, it got in on the action as well and formally licensed certain people with the ability to issue these promissory notes in the 12th century CE. The idea was that anyone could go to any one of these places that was able to issue the notes, they could trade in their coins, they would get a note in return, and then no matter how many times that note changed hands, it could still be used to redeem the original lot of coins. So it was basically a quicker and an easier and a much more convenient way of carrying around stacks and stacks and stacks of coins. You know, you just give someone a, a bit of paper instead of thousands of coins, not going to break the neck there. They just take the paper down to the uh, one of these places, trade them and get the coins themselves when they needed them. We have essentially at this point just got paper money. It's real, it's government backed, it's paper currency, and you can buy stuff with it. So, you know, it is for all intents and purposes now paper money. The Chinese government... Um, they used woodblock printing. Uh, they used they used coloured inks, and they used all these special paper. Uh, they did all sorts of stuff to uh, to prevent counterfeiting, and they gave all these notes a three year use by date as well for added security. So that obviously you know they figured out that there were some loopholes in the system, and they did their best to close them. And one of the reasons that this system was able to function so well, right? Uh, when and where it did is because at this point in history, China has a very strong and a very central government system. And so this strong central government, it was able to levy heavy penalties for counterfeiters. You just get your bloody head chopped off. And with a far-reaching jurisdiction, this medieval Chinese government, it was able to support and protect the integrity of its paper currency and ensure that it didn't get ruined by counterfeiters, fraudsters, or simply by people just not trusting the system enough to buy in. So this money, this paper money was in many ways basically just fiat money. It wasn't worth anything, you know, in and of itself, but it was backed by the government and therefore people trusted it to function properly. Unfortunately, it wasn't, you know, these fraudsters and these counterfeiters that ended up ruining the money. It was actually just the Chinese governments themselves. Uh, initially in 1265, right, the Song Dynasty, they, back, they backed the paper money with gold and silver. But then in 1279, when the Song Dynasty fell to the Mongols, the, uh, the, gov- the government-backed currency, it slowly but surely fell apart as the new Yuan Dynasty just printed as much as they could. They realised it was the ultimate get-rich-quick scheme. And of course, rampant inflation devalued the currency. And so by 1450, the Ming Dynasty returned to silver as its primary currency. But the idea of paper money was a very good one, however, and it wasn't too long before it caught on elsewhere. Marco Polo, the famous explorer and trader, he brought back stories of Chinese paper money, told people about how incredible it was that these uh, you know, Chinese traders and merchants, they were trading bits of paper with the same reverence and care than you would with gold bars. And uh, you know, while Europe didn't necessarily leap at the chance to adopt this technology, it did develop there all the same. Similarly to China in Europe, certain professions would do the same thing as their Chinese counterparts and issue promissory notes. Goldsmiths, scriveners or scribes, uh, they would keep people's wealth safe for them and they would issue receipts for what they were holding again. 
which is just a promissory note. And of course, you've you've heard of uh, of, of the famous banking families of, of places like Venice and Genoa, and you know some of the other merchant republics there. And and these banks did very much the same thing. People would go and deposit their money there for safekeeping, so that you know weren't sleeping on a mattress filled with gold bars, which is both very unsafe and also highly uncomfortable, I would imagine. And so wealthy merchants, right, would, uh, would would secure their fortunes by depositing them there and using this now this paper currency to uh, to buy and sell and trade. Wealthy merchants would also give their money to the government for safekeeping in some instances. And this proved to be a bad move for people in 17th century England because Charles I took a forced loan of all the gold that had been entrusted to him by uh, merchants. Uh, in, in the Royal Mint, Charles I came in. He said, all right, this is all mine. I'll pay it back eventually. But, yep, sorry, mate, your gold's all mine right now. Old forced loan. People weren't too, uh, people weren't too keen on that. And uh, perhaps as a result of this, many people, English people in particular, they preferred to just stick with goldsmiths. They preferred to stick with, you know, non-government entities that weren't just going to come in and take a forced loan there. And so as a result, goldsmiths in particular became a type of bank. Their chits and their receipts were used for transactions, much as the same way in the merchant republics, the larger banks there like that. And uh, all of a sudden now, as they became known, goldsmith bankers are issuing notes that are used for transactions, for loans, for money transfers, and all sorts of other things like that. The sort of thing that eventually led to the development of the check. Now, you know, as I mentioned, there are actual factual banks, great big enormous, one, enormous ones in the wealthy low countries or the merchant republics in modern day Italy, and they have similar practices. They enabled merchants and traders to travel around with bits of paper rather than, you know, gold bars stuffed down their underpants to hide them from the, uh, the highwaymen. And in the mid-17th century, goldsmith bankers and, and, you know, later on these larger merchant banks, right, they figured out something pretty bloody important. Goldsmith bankers took, took financial technology, took, you know, the, took our understanding of economics to a new level when they realised that they could issue notes to people that, if all redeemed at the same time, would actually be more gold than they had in reserve. So imagine this, right? Imagine you're a goldsmith bank. You've got 500 kilos of bank in your vault. If you've got, if you've been given these 500 gold, 500 kilos of gold by all of your clients, but then you've got people who come and say, "Hey, listen, I need to borrow some money." You go, "No worries at all," right? You give them another a note that's worth another whatever, 10, 20 kilos of gold doesn't matter, right? You know that all of your clients aren't going to come and withdraw all their gold at the same time. You know that people, it comes in, it comes out, bit here, bit there, whatever else. You know that unless there's a huge rush on your gold supply, you're never actually going to be called upon to give out all the gold that you've been hoarding for people. So, realising how unlikely it was for every single person to come in and redeem their notes at the same time, goldsmiths were essentially able to advance people money that didn't exist these notes were not backed by real gold. They were backed by the good name of the goldsmith that you could get the gold if you wanted to. Basically, you know, it, beca- it comes out of this sort of charade. You can redeem this at any time. No worries. Or you, you can get your gold whenever you like. Don't even worry about it. Just please actually don't, especially not everyone. Don't do it at the same time. Although, you know, of course you can whenever you like. Of course you can do it, of course, absolutely whenever you like. But please actually don't because if you do, we'll, we'll have problems. Of course, you know, whenever you like. The money's, the gold's absolutely yours. Absolutely. But please don't actually take me up on this. This is known as fractional reserve banking, as you only hold in reserve a fraction of the gold you've actually issued notes for. 
a very sound footing for an economic uh, economic system, you might think. What an utterly bizarre, what a ridiculous way, right, to run any kind of monetary system. There's no chance, there's no chance that an idea as bizarre, as ridiculous as this could possibly catch on, work sustainably or successful. There's no way that this could underpin an entire economy, right? Think again, my friend, because fractional reserve banking is exactly what more or less every single commercial bank still does to this very day. Think about it. The bank that you go to, you know, to, to deposit and withdraw money, they don't have the hundreds of thousands, the millions of dollars that that all that is held in all the accounts. They're absolutely not. They've got a tiny fraction of that. Money comes in, money goes out. They loan it. They take it in, whatever else. They're like that. This is the, the the cornerstone of the modern banking system, and it was invented by these goldsmiths in uh, in England, in the, these goldsmith bankers in England in the 17th century. So it was a huge leap forward for the banking system, and it wasn't the only one that goldsmith uh, bankers did as well, because they figured something else out. They stopped issuing notes to specific people, rather than just giving. You know, let's say I go and deposit, you know, my, my, my ten gold, my ten kilos of gold. I'm do, doing pretty well, bloody Patreon dollars coming in. I got actually that's probably way too much for. Why, I, I, there's no way I could afford 10. How much is 10 kilos of gold? I mean, geez, if you want to help me get there, <laughs> patreon.com slash history, mate, sign up today. Get get me my 10th kilogram of gold. Um, anyway, yeah, I got my 10 kilos of gold, my patron money. I go to the I go to this uh, this 17th century uh, English uh, goldsmith banker and I say to him, here, mate, can you look after this? He goes, no worries at all. But the, the, the note that he gives to me, it no longer says, you know, pay Riley Knight bloody 10 kilos of gold when he comes back. It just says pay the bearer, right? Whoever is holding this note is now the owner of those 10 kilograms of gold. So I can now use that note that they've given me to buy something off you, and then you can go and redeem the note for gold. Let's say that I want to buy something that's a little bit smaller than 10 kilograms of gold. So I ask the bloke, hey, instead of doing, giving me, you know, one 10 kilogram note, can you give me 10 one kilogram notes? And so all of a sudden, I can buy individual things with this divisible form of currency that we've just invented. And with that, goldsmith bankers have effectively invented the modern banknote. Although on a technical level, the very first European banknotes, if we're talking actual, you know, actual transferable piece of paper money issued by a proper bank, not just a goldsmith, this took place in 1661 from a Swedish bank called Stockholm's Banco. And this took place because of something that I mentioned before, the fluctuations in metal markets and specifically the plunging price of copper. Swedish copper coins had to be made so big because copper was so cheap. It had to be, you know, just to keep pace with the with the with the price of silver, the copper coins were so big that the Stockholm's Banco it just issued notes instead of making people deal with, you know, coins the size of bloody dinner plates or hubcaps instead. Interestingly, too, there was also another type of paper money floating around in the late uh, late 17th century, far away from the from the notes issued by uh, English uh, English goldsmith bankers or, or you know Swedish uh, <laughs> Swedish people trying to stop themselves from lugging around you know serving trays of uh, of copper over on the other side of the Atlantic in the nor- in some North American colonies, colonial authorities just ran out of money and so they couldn't pay their soldiers or their other employees so rather inventively the authorities very quickly invented a new type of money they took playing cards and the governor signed them saying that they were worth quote-unquote real money when it finally arrived from the next ship from europe and this example brings us very neatly to the next huge advancement that we've made by adopting paper uh, paper money here have you figured out what it is we have given up once and for all 
on commodity money. We have moved instead to representative money. A banknote in and of itself, it's not worth anything. It just represents worth. And the only reason that it maintains its values is because we just all kind of agree that it does. That's the only thing that keeps it uh, worth what it is, really. I mean, we can argue over, you know, the various forms of commodity money, whether gold and silver is actually worth something. But, you know, it's a shiny metal. And, and broadly speaking, you take it out of the uh, out of an economic system and people are still going to want it. Uh, where, you know, you, whereas you compare that to the, the ancient days of trading bags of grain or, or bundles of fur, which actually had a real life use that people would want to make out of it. We're so far away from that now with paper money that we definitely have moved away from commodity money. And we are in the world of representative money. And it wasn't just banknotes that did this, of course. Coins would follow suit in later times. Coins of gold and silver, full of this intrinsic value, that type of shiny money, a shiny metal, it uh, they all gave way to coins of copper, zinc and nickel with only representative value, the types of coins that we have today. So money and wealth have just become a little less tangible, a little more abstract. And in doing so, this opens up all sorts of exciting new financial technology. Loans, futures, stocks stocks and shares, all of these things and so many more are made more possible or more convenient by divorcing the value of money from its physical manifestation. Banknotes then, they have now solved almost all the problems that we've had with money from the very beginning. Coins might be a little more durable, However, it's an acceptable trade-off seeing as banknotes are lighter, they're more transportable, and they're difficult to counterfeit when they're made properly. So in fact, banknotes was such a good idea that we haven't yet moved away from them. Although that does seem to be changing a little bit these days, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Anyway, just as with medieval China, governments, they soon realised just of how good of an idea these banknotes were, and they soon became interested in regulating and controlling them. And so as we move through the 18th and 19th centuries, more and more governments start to take responsibility for centralising their national currencies. Prior to this, a nation's banks could issue their own notes in that nation's currency. Uh, but with National Reserve banks slowly but surely taking responsibility for the management and creation of currency, we saw the centralisation of currencies and, of course, the unified, uh, the you know, the unified look that most currencies have today. Of course, you might think, you know, how ridiculous it is, how ridiculous it would still be for individual banks to mint their own currency. It makes sense. You have one nation, one currency, one centralised bank. Well. As weird, as weird as it is, even today, there are still nations that have various banks that mint various banknotes for single currencies, none more so obvious than in Scotland, where the Scottish pound, which is identical in basically every other respect to the English pound, it is issued by both the Bank of Scotland, the Royal Bank of Scotland, and the Clydesdale Bank. So in Scotland, you've got three different types of paper money, all of which are worth the same amount. They're just made by different banks in a sort of, you know, in the way that all banknotes used to be issued by different banks before uh, reserve banks of, of, of various nations centralised and standardised national currencies. So while banknotes and later coins obviously had no intrinsic worth and became representative money, the important thing to note is that while they are not in themselves valuable, they still represent and are backed by actual physical wealth. Conceptually, at least, the banknotes that you carried around back then, they could be used to redeem their face value in gold from the bank that issued them. 
The gold standard was the monetary system wherein circulating currency was backed by actual physical gold held somewhere in a bank, meaning that the money in your pocket was worth some amount of actual factual gold just somewhere, right? But then along came the 20th century and with it the First World War and the Great Depression, which obliterated the functionality of the gold standard. People were specifically asked not to redeem their money for gold during this time, which ended the weird, sure, you can do it at any time, but just please don't. Although you can, of course, if you want, but just actually don't. Although you can, but don't. This charade that had been going on for years and years, it finally came to an end when governments were like, just please actually don't. Don't do it anymore, right? And the Great Depression, which was, according to some historians in economics, a direct result of the failing gold standard, it forced a rethink of international monetary systems. So after the Second World War and with the rise of the USA as a, uh, as a global economic superpower, a new monetary system arose called the Bretton Woods system, which is uh, also could be called a gold exchange standard. This system, it pegged international currencies to the US dollar, you know, in seeking a a more stable and prosperous post-war economic period backed by the you know relative stability and prosperity of the United States western european economies and other economies around the world were able to try to rebuild using the united states dollar as a touchstone as a as a as a sort of uh, you know a keystone a thing that that held international monetary systems together but in turn the united states dollar the the currency that everything else was pegged to was itself pegged to a fixed unchanging value of gold so now the money in your pocket, it is still worth gold, technically, sort of, but only if first you change it into US dollars and then accept that value of gold at a fixed and unchanging rate. Now, if this all sounds a bit complicated, it is because it bloody well is complicated. The Bretton Woods system was designed to regulate and revalue and stabilize currencies and international markets in the wake of, sec of the Second World War. And I'll tell you this, I don't fully understand it myself and we don't really need to. But the reason that I mention it is because the failure of the gold standard and its shift into the Bretton Woods system, it led to something very important taking place in the 1970s. Now, once again, the world, they're doing the stupid charade, the whole, you know, yes, yes, of course, your money's worth gold, but please don't ever try to redeem the gold. They're doing that whole thing. But with the Bretton Woods system, right, it looked, it, it was increasingly unsustainable. I mean, it was only ever meant to be temporary, but after, you know, after a couple of decades had passed since the end of the Second World War, the Bretton Woods system was, was looking increasingly unsustainable. And, and people around the world were looking more and more likely to actually call the bluff of the uh, of this please don't redeem the gold and they, the, the the united states was worried about a rush on its on its gold right they were worried that people would actually come and turn all the money into us dollars turn the us dollars into gold and then abscond with the gold so given that so many people are actually you know looking to do the thing and redeem their gold in 1971 us president richard nixon he responded he finally acknowledged that the emperor wasn't wearing any clothing and he told everyone around the world you know that thing that we've said about how you can gold it whenever you want but please don't do it well actually you can't you actually just cannot take you cannot take any gold you cannot redeem any of your money for any gold Nixon decoupled the US dollar from gold, meaning that the money in your pocket is now worth, in 1971, the, min the money in your pocket is now worth basically whatever we all agree it is worth. And this is a concept known as fiat currency, and it is what more or less every single type of money is today. The only reason that the banknotes in your pocket are worth anything at all 
is because we all just kind of pretend that they are. Like the colonial playing cards, we all go around exchanging colourful bits of paper that we, you know, can't use to eat or keep warm, but they do let you take very cool things like skateboards or Lego sets from shops without getting into trouble. So I suppose it's not really that bad of a system. Finally, to close out the show today, I want to talk to you about the next frontier of money, digital currency, of course, and Bitcoin. Digital currency is easy enough to understand. Now we live in a world of you know, fiat currency. We live in a world where money has been completely decoupled from actually any kind of intrinsic or representative value. Money is just worth what it is because we say it is. And we realize that it's not that hard to represent wealth, represent value as just numbers. And we may as well put those numbers on a screen. You can give someone some of your screen's wealth numbers and they'll give you some Lego and now you've got the Lego and now they've got some of their wealth numbers on their screen and they add that to the numbers that they already have and the system just kind of works like that. It's a decent system. And, uh, you know, if you remember what all of these advancements that we've made with money have been about, you'll quickly see that digital money is just the next step from commodity money to coinage to representative money to fiat money. Every step has made money a more convenient tool to use. And digital money is exactly the same. It is just about convenience. And today, in the midst of a global pandemic, we're seeing digital money become an increasingly important, you know, important part of this, this whole global picture as people, you know, attempt to keep their distance from one another and stop passing around grubby bits of paper or metal, uh, you know, digital currency in 2020 at least isn't just about convenience, it's also about safety. But the next step forward when it comes to digital currency, it's, it, it, look, it does seem to be something that I'm sure you've heard of, cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin. Now, I've done a bunch of reading on Bitcoin and I still don't really understand how it works, but I do know that it's designed to be independent from third-party financial institutions. This is the main point of difference that it has. In 2008, uh, it was invented as a way to remove a bank or a government as a, as a sort of middleman when it comes to uh, you know any kind of financial transaction. So because, I mean, when you think about it, right, when you buy a Lego set, apparently it's the only thing I'm buying these days, a Lego set with money, you're necessarily involving the government, it's, as it's them who says that the money that you're using has worth. And you're involving your bank as well, because you know, you've know got a bank balance, the money's taken out of that bank balance, put into a different bank balance. So you are involving these third parties. So rather than banks or governments holding or regulating or in any way influencing your wealth, Bitcoin instead is a peer-to-peer -peer payment system that doesn't involve any third party, uh, you know, oversight or regulation with, a, with a, a government or a bank. So Bitcoin, these transactions, they take place outside of, of government regulated currency markets. I, I very quickly realizing this is starting to turn into a sales pitch for Bitcoin. That's not what I'm trying to get across. I do want to explain, however, how it works as best as I can here with my dumb idiot brain. This is how I began to understand, understand how it works. So hopefully this will... Uh, you know, help you at least understand a little bit of, of the way that Bitcoin functions, right? In order to explain Bitcoin, I instead want to tell you the story of the rye stones, or maybe the ray stones, that are found on the island of Yap. Now, Yap is an island in the Federated States of Micronesia, 
And on this island, you can find its ray stones. They're these massive, enormously heavy disks of limestone. These stones, some of them are hundreds, thousands of years old. They're up to four metres in diameter. And uh, the bigger ones weigh tons and tons and tons. There are smaller ones as well, smaller ones that, you know, way, way smaller. But the big ones, the big ones you see all the snaps of, massive, huge, huge, metres and metres, right? And you might be surprised to learn that these ray stones are actually a type of money that are used by the people of Yap. And they've been used as money for centuries. They were quarried and they were transported from Palau, a different island, a difficult and dangerous undertaking, which actually contributed to the worth of some of the stones. <laughs> if someone died while crafting or transporting a raised stone, it became worth a lot more due to, the, you know, due to that fact alone. And some were crafted more, uh, more carefully, some were made to look more impressive, and obviously their value rose as a, as a result. But, um, you know, the, the, the whole story of money has been one of convenience and you can hardly put a bloody four-ton four stone in your pocket when you want to go down the bag of, buy a bag of chips from the milk bar. So what the people of Yap did was this. With all of their money carefully assembled on the island, spread around wherever it is, right, they then kept a ledger of who owned which stone or what percentage of which stone and when some or all of a stone was transferred to someone else for payment, the ledger was then updated. I mean, it makes sense. Right? Think about this. Just like the gold in a vault, a vault and the colourful bits of paper, you don't actually need to have the gold. You just need everyone else to agree that you own it. And it, the location of the gold actually doesn't matter as long as, you, as long as everyone agrees, whether it's a colourful bit of paper or this ledger that the, uh, the people of Yap had, if everyone agrees that you've got the money, then you are therefore wealthy. And so it was with the ray stones. As long as everyone agreed that you own one or part of these great big stones, then you were wealthy and you could spend your wealth as you saw fit. But check this out. The ledger that I was talking about, the way that all the people of Yap agreed as to who owned, the, uh, who owned what bit of which stone, it wasn't written down. It was actually instead kept orally. The people of Yap would remember communally which stone belonged to whom and update changes to ownership and therefore wealth in a communal oral ledger. Absolutely incredible. Think about this. There wasn't a single regulatory body that managed who owned which stone. Instead, everyone came together and shared stories and, 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 and used this oral, this distributed oral ledger in order to track wealth across the island. And so it was this sort of wealth by consensus. But it gets even better. And, as, and this, this is what will tie the story back to, uh, to bitcoins here. Because the most amazing part of the story of the, uh, of the ray stones on the island of Yap is that some of the stones weren't even there. Now, what does this mean? This obviously this sounds bonkers. How, how can the stone not be there and still be and still be part of the, the financial system of the island? Yeah. Well, check this out, right? This this actually happened here. One time, uh, some people were returning back to Yap with some newly quarried ray stones on the, you know, they're on their outrigger canoes, they're on their rafts, and as they're making the journey back to the island of Yap, one of the stones, it breaks it breaks free, it falls into the water, and it sinks to the bottom of the sea, right? And after getting back to the island. All the people have gone, what happened to that stone? Oh, I fell in the water. It's at the bottom of the thing there. Well, they go, well, hang on. The stone still exists. The, the, the wealth that it represents is still there, right? It, it might be, you know, on, it might be inaccessible on the, on the sea floor, but we're not carrying around these stones anyway. So what's to say that it's still not worth something? Even, you know, we're not, we're not moving these stones around. We're not keeping them in our, in our backyards. So the stones on the bottom of the sea still maintained 
value. Even though they couldn't be seen, even though they weren't actually there on the island, they were still put on to the ledger and they were still maintained as an as a part of the economic system of this island. I mean, after all, the locations of all the other stones was completely irrelevant to their to the owner, the respective owner. So why should this one be any different? The important thing was never the stone. It was never the stones themselves that were important. It was the ledger. It was the distributed ledger where the ownership and value of the currency was decided upon communally. And so it is, as far as I understand it, at least. And so it is with Bitcoin as well. Both Raystones and Bitcoin. They rely on an independently distributed ledger that tells everyone who owns how much of each coin. Even if you can't see or hold bitcoins, much like the raystones at the bottom of the sea, they still have value. And, of course, decoupled as they are from, from third party, from governments, from banks, it could be the very next big step forward that that we take. We again, I'm sounding very sales pitchy here. I don't know. Bitcoin seems kind of cool. I'm not trying. To, I'm definitely not trying to sell Bitcoin to anyone. Anyway, anyway. After listening to this podcast, you might feel now that money is, you know, hardly more than just smoke and mirrors. It, it, it's like a trick of the light. It's a collective emperor's new clothes that we all just kind of agree has the worth that it does. But you know. It, kind of works. You use money every day and it's very rare that anyone will say something like, oh, excuse me, mate, what's this bloody colourful bit of paper? How about, a, how about a good old-fashioned hunk of gold, please? Look, I'm not saying it's a perfect system. It's not. I'm not. It's definitely not a perfect system. But I'll tell you what, I certainly wouldn't want to have to drag around a bloody sack full of animal pelts just to buy the Lego Millennium Falcon. So, I don't know. For now, I reckon it'll do. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of money. And I hope you enjoyed it. I, I, I learned so much about this. I, I, I mean, again, it was just, I really enjoy doing these history of something podcasts. I'm going to do more of them in the future because there's just these things you don't think about. You don't wonder where they came from or, or think about how they got to the point that they did. And you kind of just take it for granted. So it's really, really interesting to explore. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Anyway, that is that for this week of Half Ass History. It's been a long one, so I'll wrap up the show very quickly with all the housekeeping stuff. Halfasshistory.net, of course, you find it at episode subscribe, iTunes, and Spotify. You can get in touch. There's a contact form there. And if you want to support the show with actual, factual, real, real, with your digital money today, if I mean, all this talk of money, whoo, patreon.com slash halfasshistory, or you can go to um, uh, 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 halfasshistory.bigcartel.com and you can actually buy stuff with your money. I'll actually send you, I'll send you uh, uh, some commodity money if you send me some fiat currency. I mean, fiat, fiat money, it's not worth anything, right? I mean, it's just, we all agree that it's, it's just fake money. I'll send you t-shirts, which are actually worth something. Whew, imagine that, you know, keep yourself warm, beautiful, actual, actual intrinsic value to them. Anyway, uh, that is that. Please do get in touch with any uh, any topics, suge- suggestions you have, and I'll be back next week with more Half Us History. Looking forward to it. And uh, until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Robot641 has a question for us here. <clears throat> if money doesn't grow on trees, then why do banks have branches? <laughs> <laughs>